0: Before we get started this evening, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to begin with so you can uh, make sure that you are spiritually prepared to study the word this evening, and then uh, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your grace and your goodness to us for all that you've provided for us and for the fact that you have given us such a such tremendous blessings in this uh, church age and that you have given us so many different uh, assets that relate to our spiritual life and our spiritual growth above all the indwelling and the filling of the Holy Spirit who uh, strengthens us and enables us to live out the Christian life that you have laid out in your word. Father, as we study your word, we're mindful of the fact that this is our only source of wisdom, our only source of knowledge, and it's within the light of your light that we understand truth. And so, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that you would help us to Understand these things that you would enlighten the eyes of our soul that we may have a, a clear understanding of the truth of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I always appreciate it when I get emails from people, and I've gotten a number of uh, emails from different folks over the last uh, week or two related to the topic on Tuesday night, which is economics. And uh, last, it uh, was about three or four lessons ago, we started uh, in uh, looking at what the scriptures teach in giving us a foundation and a framework for economics. And I also put forth some definitions of uh, co- uh, communism, socialism, and capitalism. And somebody emailed me this last week, I've got two or three different emails with different definitions, and I sort of put them together, and so this always helps you to uh, get a little better grasp, it's a little more down-to-earth, a little more practical, helps us understand uh, some of these uh, distinct terms. Okay, capitalism is when you own two cows and you sell one and you buy a bull and together they enable you to build a herd of cows and you sell some for a profit and use that profit to buy whatever it is you want to buy. That is capitalism. Pure democracy, though, is when you have two cows and your neighbor decides who gets the milk. A representative democracy, you have two cows and your neighbors pick someone to decide who gets the milk. An American democracy, the government promises to give you two cows if you vote for it. After the election, the president is impeached for speculating in cow futures. The press dubs the affair Cowgate. Now, we all know we have a problem with bureaucracy. Bureaucracy is when you have two cows and the state takes both of them, accidentally kills one, and spills the milk in the sewer. In a military dictatorship, you have two cows. The state takes both of them and shoots you. In fascism, you have two cows. The state takes both of them and sells you the milk. And it is poor quality and spoils rapidly. In socialism, you have two cows. The state takes one and gives it to someone else. In communism, you have two cows. The state takes both of them and gives you the milk. It is also quickly spoiled and tastes bad. And in anarchy, you have two cows. Either you sell the milk at a uh, fair price as determined by your neighbors, or your neighbors will kill you and take the cows for themselves. That's sort of like what's going on with the uh, Occupy Wall Street uh, movement. It's interesting today, I was watching on the news that in various cities, they're uh, trying to move them out of the parks and they use this First Amendment right, and I'm not sure how free speech gives them the right to destroy public property or other people's property. And it's really interesting to compare the behavior of the Tea Party groups and their uh, whenever they would have rallies and these Occupy Wall Street uh, individuals. There was never any arrest made with any of the Tea Party crowds. There's never been any destruction of private property. Uh, They've always picked up after themselves, so they've always cleaned up their litter, cleaned up their trash, and that's not what's happening with the uh, Tea Party crowd. Well, as we continue with our uh, understanding of economics according to the ownership of two cows, we can understand the difference between our two uh, political parties and how they treat the two cows. According to the Democrats, you have two cows. Your neighbor has none, You feel guilty, or you are actually made to feel guilty, for being successful in having two cows. You push for higher taxes so the government can provide cows for everyone and will take one of yours to help your neighbor. The Republicans' view is you have two cows, your neighbor has none, so... Now, when we get into understanding an American corporation, it works like this. You have two cows. You sell one, lease it back to yourself, and do an IPO on the second one. You force the two cows to produce the milk of four cows. You're surprised when one cow drops dead. You spin an announcement to the analyst stating that you've downsized and are reducing expenses. Your stock goes up. In a French corporation, you have two cows. You go on strike because you want three cows. You go to lunch and drink wine and life is good. In a Japanese corporation, you have two cows. You redesign them so they are one-tenth the size of an ordinary cow and produce 20 times the milk. They learn to travel on unbelievably crowded trains and most are at the top of their class at cow school. In a German corporation, you have two cows. You engineer them so they are all blonde, drink lots of beer, give excellent quality milk, and run 100 miles an hour. Unfortunately, they also demand 13 weeks of vacation every year. In an Italian corporation, you have two cows, but you don't know where they are. You break for lunch. Like the French, you drink some wine. Life is good. In a Russian corporation, you have two cows. You drink some vodka. You count them and learn you have five cows. You drink some more vodka. This is very true. You count them again and learn you have 42 cows. You drink some more vodka, the mafia shows up and takes over however many cows you really have. In the Taliban corporation, you have all the cows in Afghanistan, which are two. You don't milk them because you cannot touch any creature's private parts. You get a $40 million grant from the U.S. government to find alternatives to milk production but use the money to buy weapons. In an Iraqi corporation, you have two cows. They go into hiding. They send radio tapes of their mooing. (laughs) In a Polish corporation, you have two bulls. Employees are regularly maimed and killed attempting to milk them. In a Belgian corporation, you have one cow. The cow has a split personality. Sometimes the cow thinks she's French, French. other times she's Flemish. The Flemish cow won't share with the French cow. The French cow wants control of the Flemish cow's milk. The cow asks permission to be cut in half. The cow dies happy. Last one, Florida corporation. You have a black cow and a brown cow. Everyone votes for the best-looking cow. Some of the people who actually like the brown cow accidentally vote for the black one. Some people vote for both. Some people vote for neither. Some people can't figure out how to vote at all. Finally, a bunch of guys from out of state tell you which one you think is the best-looking cow. And so goes our understanding of economics and politics according to the ownership of cows. Now one other thing that came in this week which I thought was really illuminating and that is uh, that we all have trouble when we get up into large numbers. Anything that has a comma in it befuddles me but uh, beyond that there are numbers that have three, four, five, six or more commas and when they get large like that We tend to think it's just funny money, or at least people we elect and send to Washington seem to think it's funny money and it has no real value. And people who don't pay a lot of attention to economics or to budgetary items or what goes on in Washington, D.C., uh, they just, when it gets into talking about trillion this and trillion that, just what's another trillion and i got to pick up three different kids at school and get them to soccer practice and to piano lessons and to theater classes all at the same time and I only have one car and it's out of gas. So that's what they're concerned about. But this will make things a little simpler. The United States tax revenue is, what is that, 2170000000000 Dollars. Federal budget is three trillion eight hundred twenty billion dollars. The new debt is uh, what is that one trillion six hundred fifty billion dollars. National debt is fourteen trillion two hundred seventy-one billion dollars. And recent budget cut is thirty-eight billion dollars, thirty eight billion five hundred million dollars. Now if we just take out the zeros, it makes a lot of sense. Think of a household budget. The annual family income is twenty one thousand seven hundred dollars. The money the family spent this last year is thirty eight thousand two hundred dollars. Somebody's in trouble. The new debt on the credit card is sixteen thousand five hundred dollars. The outstanding balance on the credit card is $142,710. Total budget cuts, $385. Now that really brings it into perspective. That's the people we elect. They think that they can solve that $142,710 debt by just cutting $385. But they're not, they can't, and they can't even agree on that. So they make this stupid decision to get six people, is it six or 12, six people from each party that can never agree with each other because foundationally they have different ways of looking at how to use money. And so it's impossible. There's one or two that may compromise, but it's impossible. So they they put them in a room. They say, if you don't come out of that room in agreement in three months or four months, we're going to radically slash everybody's budget stupid decision next week they're going to come out and they're going to pull the trigger on slashing everything because i don't think that they can come to a decent agreement on and i hope they don't because the republicans better not back off of that promise no new taxes because you raise taxes on anyone in a down economy it's, just, it's going to destroy the economy. We're going to watch the stock market tank and people's confidence, which is already at an extremely low level tank. And it's all because philosophically, when it comes to looking at money and value, we shifted in the 19th century with once you remove God and absolutes from the picture, no matter whether you're talking about the origin of life, in terms of creation or evolution or whether you're talking about uh, the nature of man or whether you're talking about uh, law, if the ultimate reference point is inside of creation, it's a moving target and people can move it wherever they want to and they can make up the rules every other decade however they want them to be and that can only last so long and then... Everything, is going to, everything implodes because they've created a fantasy world that there's no God, there's no accountability. And what we saw in our previous lesson, especially last time, is that if we're going to try to build or develop an understanding of an economic theory that, that is based on Scripture, there's two elements here. One is we have to define specific biblical absolutes that are that are revealed and then within the borders that are established by understanding those biblical absolutes you can develop maybe different ways of or different views of economics that are consistent with those absolutes because in many ways and I'll point out something on this a little later on this evening in many ways I think that that when when god gives us guidelines for certain things he doesn't say it, it with many things it has to be done this precise way some things are done that way when it has to do with our relation to, with, to him but i think that one example that i think is i think is obvious in the new testament is there's there is not a precise guidance or, or instruction on how the leadership of a local church is to function. There are guidelines. There are supposed to be certain leaders in place. The ultimate authority in the local church, the ultimate leader in the local church is the pastor. There are others that function within the, the local church. There may be multiple pastors. There may be uh, there are deacons, there are di- different gifted people within a congregation, but God le- sets out certain absolutes, and within that there 's flexibility because if you 're coming if you 're dealing with one people group coming out of a certain culture, an Asian culture, or Russian culture, how they view leadership and authority is very, very different from how uh, someone in Africa is going to view leadership and authority. And that's going to be different from how an American views uh, leadership and authority. And so within each culture, there's, there's ways in which you can take those absolutes and stay within those borders, and there's enough flexibility there to, to uh, apply within each culture in different circumstances and situations so that you can't take certain things that work uh, precisely one way in one culture and just pick it up and transfer it over and plant it into another culture. And the same thing works in uh, other areas of uh, of life and other areas of application in the scripture. So when we look at these absolutes, the foundation, as I've pointed out the last couple of times, is really understanding the divine institutions. And the first three are foundational, they're before the fall, individual responsibility, marriage, and family. And then we have government and nations that come afterward. So I think it's important to understand the distinction that one is oriented to to promote productivity, uh, individual responsibility, marriage and family. Just think what happens when you have family problems and family breakups and how much money it costs. You realize how much money is spent in this country dealing with the consequences of family breakdown from education to uh, criminality, uh, prisons, jails, drugs, all of these things because there's a breakdown, uh, breakdown in the family. When marriages break down in divorces, uh, of course, it's really good for the lawyers, but they're the only ones who seem to ever get, a, get ahead. Uh, but it costs both the husband and the wife a tremendous amount of, of money and financial resources, And in many cases, they have to start all over again. In some cases, there are many cases they don't ever really get started or have the ability to start over again. And I pointed out last time that as part of that first divine institution, individual responsibility, there are three key elements that we see all in Genesis 2, and that's spiritual accountability. And our accountability is to God. Every individual is accountable to God For what we are given, whatever the resources are that God has given us, physical resources, spiritual resources, family resources, what intelligence, our talents, everything that we have from the moment we're born, what are we going to choose to do with uh, those resources and how are we going to choose to use them in light of whatever circumstances there might be that we encounter in life? You cannot guarantee equality of those circumstances. This is a problem that you have with utopian socialists, is that they start from a perspective that people are basically good, and everybody ought to start with the same on a level playing field and start with the same uh, op- opportunities uh, or the same circumstances. And you, you can't guarantee that. They're vastly different. We are equal as our Constitution says, and as the founders intended, not in terms of our um, attributes, not in terms of our circumstances in life, we're not equal in terms of our IQ, our potential, or any of those things. We can only be guaranteed an equal opportunity of freedom before the law. That's all a government can guarantee. And when, a guar- when the government starts to manipulate the circumstances to try to give everybody the same equal circumstances, Then it is destructive to families, it's destructive to cultures, because no one else, no government, no committee, no one else has the right to come in and say, I really think you ought to do it this way. This is what I find works for me, and you have to do it this way. And that is a loss of freedom. And we see this happen again and again and again, no matter how much we might think that some action or activity or way of eating or diet or uh, health practice or injurious health practice is, is good or negative. What gives any of us the right to say someone else needs to do that and has to do it the way we think it ought to be done? And yet we have a culture today that is loaded with self-righteous people, both on the left and on the right, who try to dictate to, so that everybody does it, does it their way. Well, we started off last time, we talked about individual responsibility, and individual responsibility was one of, of three key elements, I think, that that have to be a part of any economic system, an emphasis on on the responsibility of the individual, now one other thing that we need to note when we talk about personal responsibility is that if you 're responsible for your success to take whatever it is that God has given you and make a success of it you're in order to be truly uh, truly free in in utilizing those assets, you have to be and to be free to succeed, you have to be uh, equally free to fail. We learn more from failure than we do from success, and yet part of utopian socialism comes in, and we want to protect people from the consequences of their bad decisions. And and yet throughout Scripture, there's an emphasis on the fact that we learn from our bad decisions. In fact, I believe that we, most of us learn more from our bad decisions and falling on our face and learning that we can't do it our way, we can only do it God's way, now, when we try to come in and, we, and protect the circumstances so that we can't fail, then we are also uh, uh, l- limiting our o- opportunities to succeed. And to the degree that we're able to fail, to that same degree we're able to succeed. The only way you can level the playing field is to take away from those who are successful, and so that you can limit the uh, negatives of the people of the people who fail. So responsibility, to have true responsibility and true freedom, you have to be able to to freely succeed or freely fail. And freedom always involves responsibility. In fact, I think it's more important to talk about responsibility than it is to talk about rights. And I remember when I first got out of college and I... I uh, graduated at the end of the summer, so I was a little late getting applications out to school districts to uh, teach school, and one job came open down in Channelview, lovely part of town. If any of you are from from Channelview, I don't mean to insult you. I did my time down there. Um, lovely part of town, lovely, lovely 12- and 13-year-old kids down there. Just They're just the, you know, just the apple of their parents' eyes if they know who they are. And... Um, my job was that, that that was when they were first starting this thing in, t- in schools that instead of sending kids home if they were, were badly, badly behaved, instead of expelling them, they would keep them in school and send them to what they called an in-school suspension class. It's all about the money. Don't ever think it was something good for the kids. It was all about the money because in the state of Texas, like most states, uh, schools get dollars for every head that's in the classroom that day. So if if they can keep these kids, these incorrigible little brats that would have been stoned under the Mosaic law, in school for those two or three days, then, um, uh, then they're going to get good money for it. So, in fact, it'll pay for a teacher. So let's hire this guy right out of college and put him out there. And so they would suspend kids and send them to me. And that was just a lot of fun. I, I had a great time. It really was a great job. The Lord had me in the right place. I did that for two years, and I was able to read all of Chaffers Systematic Theology, every textbook that I would have to read for both my first year and second year in seminary. While I was there, most of the time I just had three or four kids, but there was probably half the time I had more than that. And sometimes I would, when they would, you know, Inconsistently uh, enforce a zero tolerance policy. I would get 18 or 20 kids, and and that was always a lot of fun. But there were always three or four that just couldn't figure out how to do uh, how to do anything uh, any, anything right. And these little 12 or 13 year old juvenile delinquents would come in there, and you would tell I would tell them to sit down and do their work. You can't make me. I have my rights. I mean, if one, every time they came in, that was the first thing you'd hear. I have my rights. You can't make me do that. You can't make me do that. Back then, you know, back then kids could, it wasn't a federal crime or state crime if they smoked on school property, so they always tried to sneak a cigarette. And I never could figure this out because I was way out in the middle building in the back, uh, in, 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 the, um, in the shop, and so I'd take them out of the classroom, and there were two restrooms right there, the, the boys and the girls, and I would line them up right outside the room, and I'd let them go in one at a time. You know, it was just a one-holer, and so they went in, and then they would come out. And if they smoked a cigarette out out there and then opened the door when they came out, billows of smoke would come out, and they would think, how would you know I was smoking? I wasn't smoking in there. I didn't have a cigarette. That was somebody else. I have my rights. You can't make me do that, so... Scripture doesn't emphasize our rights. It emphasizes our responsibilities, that if we have freedom, we have responsibilities, and we're responsible to someone, we're accountable to God. And over and over again, there's this emphasis on, on accountability. And it comes across, as I pointed out the last couple of times in Genesis 1, 28, and 2, 15, these positive mandates that God gave to Adam uh, in the garden. And I also pointed out that that this involves uh, w- work, uh, service to God. I pointed out that, there, that, that in the Trinity you have both social and economic relationships. And the social has to do with the love that God the Father has for the Son and the Spirit and each person of the Trinity has for each other. And the economic relationship has to do with the fact that there's authority within the structure of the Godhead and yet there is individual uh, labor responsibilities uh, for, for each one. So that lays the groundwork. Now, at the beginning, we saw that God established responsibility for man. He was to work, but it wasn't toilsome. It wasn't burdensome. It didn't give him despair. It was joy because this was serving God, and he had responsibility over all of the planet. But who owns the planet? God does see the foundational principle in a biblical view of economics is that God owns the resources. That has great implications if we wanted to divert to thinking about the environment, but we're just going to confine this to uh, talking about the uh, talking about economics. Now, Leviticus 25:23 course this is specifically talking about the land that god gave the israelites but the principle there was just a a a derivative of the overall principle which is the land the planet is owned by god this is the foundation for all of the parables that jesus talks about in the new testament when he speaks about there was a land owner that's god and he sends his son, or he sends a steward or representative or something. But it always has to do with the landowner, and that is that represents God. Leviticus twenty-five twenty-three: God told the Israelites, The land shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. God ultimately owns the resources. Man, the human race, is like a tenant farmer. So, we can buy and sell, but when we think we 're the ultimate owner of all of our resources that 's when we get in trouble and that's that 's when you look at the new testament well even Old Testament passages dealing with with giving it 's always looking at man as a responsible steward or administrator of land of property of financial resources that all come from god and this is this to me is what truly separates a biblical view of economics from any of the secular systems that are out there, no matter how accurate they may be in places, there are elements within a biblical worldview that make it very different. And this is one of them, that that the land, the, the property, the business, the financial resources, whatever it is we own, it's simply on loan from God. God is the one who is the ultimate... Uh, owner of all the resources, and he tells us how they are to be used and how we are to uh, to think about the things that we that we own. Okay, before I get out of Genesis, I want to go to I want to re- review the 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 first key for economic policy was personal responsibility. Second key is property, and we'll talk more about property uh, in, in Exodus in a minute. And then the third was what I ended with last time talking about the uh, value. What is value? Is value something that is intrinsic or is value something that is extrinsic, that is imputed to something? Uh, by, and, and, we, and the conclusion was that value is imputed by God uh, to things and that that value, though, it may be intrinsic. And I pointed out last time as I was talking about Value and what makes something va- valuable, and how gold may be valued at in one culture at one in one way, and in another culture another way. That water in the Sahara Desert is going to be valued one way, but but water in Minnesota is going to be valued another way. Uh, so that value changes according to certain circumstances and we impute that to the culture, and that helps us understand. Um, understand a lot of things that go on at the cross and the whole doctrine uh the whole doctrine of imputation. So in terms of the imputation uh, uh in terms of understanding value uh it is imputed by God. Now I said last time that one one I gave an example. I said um I said if you take the Bible as 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 literature and you take pornography in a Deccan or pagan society, what's going to be valued more the Bible or or uh Pornography. Well, pornography is going to be valued more. We have great Bible study tools. Those of you who know anything about Logos or Accordance or some of those programs? It is amazing the things that we have. We have live streaming video. That is just amazing what do we do with live streaming video, but all of that technology is driven by pornography demands back in the back in the nineties. Because because the perverted elements of our culture who wanted to sell uh, pornography, saw the money there, they were pushing for, for more and more technological capability to upgrade the quality of, uh, of the, the filth that they wanted to put out across the Internet. Well, as they developed those things, like live streaming and other things like that, well, you know, everybody else benefits from that, but it, that's, that's where a lot of that came from. It doesn't come from the Scripture. The scripture teaches that there is, the, so that shows a relative value. But the Bible also says, for example, in Psalm 19, that the Bible is to be valued more than gold. So there is an intrinsic value to the Bible. And I thought about this some more since last week. And the reason the Bible has that intrinsic value is what? It's because it's the Word of God. God has intrinsic value. Jesus Christ has intrinsic value. There's not imputed value to either the, uh, uh, to either the scripture or to Jesus Christ but everything within creation has has an imputed value but that which is related to God has um, unchangeable eternal intrinsic value so I uh, just want to make that obse- that that one observation now when we look at before we get out of Genesis 3, in Genesis 3:17, as God is outlining the consequences of sin to the serpent and then to Eve and then to Adam in verse 17, he said then to Adam he said because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. So the ground is judged. Now before the ground was not judged. The ground was was unhindered. It was ready to just produce bountifully. Uh, and we can't even imagine what that must have been like, to the production in a perfect environment where there was nothing within the soil that would be detrimental to the growth of any, uh, of any plant. But now the ground is going to be judged. The ground, is, the environment is going to fight the farmer. That's why work serving God becomes laborious, dreary, toilsome, negative at this point because now there's resistance from creation because it's under a curse the, the verse goes on to say in toil you shall eat of it and the word that is translated toil here is a word that that brings in uh, the physical difficulty as well as the emotional difficulty of of work, and I think everybody here knows something about that, what it's like when that alarm goes off at 5.30 in the morning, and you have to get up, you're facing a 12-hour day, and you're not feeling very well, or even if you are feeling very well, you just have to go off and do your job, and it is, you just have to discipline yourself to go do it, and that's what that toil means. That was not that way before the fall, so It says, you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. So now that not only is the soil cursed, but it's going to produce things that also make it more difficult to be involved in positive production and utilizing the resources that God God has given us. And verse 19 says, in the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread until you, till you return to the ground. So we get a new concept of labor. Labor is no longer the unhindered um, uh, work, service of God that brings us pure joy in, in serving him and utilizing and developing the creation. It now becomes burdensome. Okay, let's turn to um, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. This is when we get into the the Mosaic law. Now, to understand the Mosaic law, we have to understand a little bit about the structure of the Mosaic law. There are uh, basically three components to the Mosaic law. The first is the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments are covered here in Exodus chapter 20. And the Ten Commandments are a summary of the primary principles that underlie everything else that is within the law is the um, approach to law that we find in the Mosaic Law is called case law, where God doesn't say everything there is to say about every kind of situation, but he gives parameters. He gives the principle. For example, we'll look at uh, thou shalt not steal. And then he will go into specifics on what happens when there is theft and what the principles are and the different types of theft. But he doesn't cover everything. But God gives enough specifics there to where something that comes up that doesn't fit that scenario can be thought through by man. That's what I'm saying. You have certain pegs, as we'll see when we get into Exodus 22, talks about uh, various aspects of, of theft and the penalty for theft well, what happens if you have a scenario that doesn't fit that? Well, then you, you, God's already set down, as it were, the fence posts around the, the, the territory of dealing with a theft issue. And so then you, man, as an image bearer of God, establishes and uh, man works out the details and applies the, applies the principles. Now, when we look at the Ten Commandments, There are ten commandments, and three of them have to do specifically with property. The fourth commandment is given in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 through 11, the longest of the commandments. Cast with creation. Remember the Shabbat. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And that word holy, kadash, means to keep it set apart. It's distinct. There's something unique about that day. Keep it separate from what you do on the other six days. Then verse 9 says, six days you shall labor. That's the same word that, that, that is used back in Genesis uh, 2, 17, when, when God puts uh, Adam in the garden and says that he is to keep the garden and to guard it, that word keep, Ava, this broad word, it can mean work, it can mean service, uh, it can uh, bleed over into something more laborious, um, but it, 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 that's the main idea, is that six days you shall labor, you shall work, and do all your work. And there's a different word that, that's brought in there, and this is the Hebrew word here, uh, malakah, And it has to do with, uh, it can mean work, but it it has a little more specific meaning. Uh, It relates to craftsmanship, dealing with your property. It can refer to either the activity of working itself or the skills related to work or to to the, uh, the results that the work produces. In contrast to other terms like Amal and Yaga, which emphasize the toilsome, laborious side of work, This term, emphasized work, is involving skills and benefits. I wanted to emphasize that. This is a positive word that emphasizes the the skill of production and the benefits that one has from, from working well. And so the pattern, even that word, takes us back to the pattern of God's creation where he works for six days and then he looks at his creation, he's satisfied that everything is according to plan, and God rested. It doesn't mean he was tired, it means he ceased from his labor, from his creative work on the, on the seventh day. That's sets the pattern. This is one of the passages that is, uh, that is important for understanding a literal 24-hour day in Genesis, because th- we're all workaholics, but Jewish people have a reputation for being workaholics. I, I tried this out on one of my uh, Jewish friends. We, were t- we got off talking about creation one day, and um, afterward I emailed him on this. I haven't got an answer back. He was he was saying I, I, he, he just was saying I don't know how those days could, could be 24-hour days. I said, well, if they're not 24-hour days, and you can look at at the fourth commandment here and say, well. Six million years you shall labor and do all your work and rest on the seventh million year. You don't ever have to take off for the sixth day anymore because they're not 24-hour days. But if you're going to apply this as a 24-hour day, then the pattern that uh, the archetype back in Genesis 1 has to be a 24-hour day. Otherwise, if those were 1,000-year periods or 10,000-year periods or million-year periods, then then the day here can be a lengthy period of time as well. So you have to be consistent because remember the guy who wrote Genesis 1, same guy who wrote Exodus 20, and that's Moses. So the problem that moderns have, and modern is a technical term for people who live since the uh, 16th century um, with modernism, have this incredible arrogance towards ancients that we think they were just dumber than dirt and they would write one sentence and contradict themselves in the next sentence. At least that's how uh, m- many modern scholars have treated the writers of Scripture or, or other ancients. They just didn't know what they were talking about. In many cases, we're learning that they were more brilliant than, than moderns are. So uh, if, if Moses, who wrote Genesis 1 and 2, writes Exodus 28 through 11, unless Moses is just dumber than dirt... Uh, he must mean the same thing in both passages. He's not going to contradict himself. So he says six, the commandment from God says, six days you shall labor and do all of your work by the seventh but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. See how this applies even to your animals. If you're in an agricultural environment and an agricultural economy, this allows for your workers to rest, your servants to rest, your animals to rest, and then they are more productive after they have rested. And then the reason that is given is the Lord's pattern, verse 11, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. So... This is a pattern of labor, that God is blessing labor. This is a command to labor, to work for six days. It's not a command to, this is an option you have. You can work for six days. In the French Revolution, they tried to, uh, humanists always try to rejigger God's laws into something else. And so they came along and said that, uh, well, we're going to have a 10-day work week. Didn't work. There's just something that God has built into the structure of reality that, that is a seven day week and you can't, it can't be changed and you can't experiment with it and come to any, any success. So the fourth commandment emphasizes labor and enjoying the results of your own productivity. Your neighbor doesn't get to enjoy them. You know, in the sense of some sort of socialistic environment where we all own the same property and so you make it and they enjoy it. The next verse that talks about property is Exodus 20, verse 15. You shall not steal. Now, that's just a short command. You shall not steal. But stealing means that there is some property that we do not have a right to. Someone else owns it. So what this command recognizes is a personal, private ownership of property, and that it is wrong for one person to take that property that another person owns and to give it, take it for themselves, or to give it to someone else. So there, there's a principle there that private property must be respected. And I remember the first time I had an incident in my life to understand the lesson of private property. And I don't know that parents today, some of you probably do, but I know there are many parents today that do not teach respect for private property to their kids because they have no respect for private property. But I remember when I was in kindergarten, I was just a real troublemaker, and my dad had been put on loan to trans Pipeline. He was an engineer for Tennessee Gas Pipeline here, and they put him on loan for two years, and we moved up to uh, Toronto. And so I started kindergarten in Toronto, singing God Save the Queen and all those other things that the Brits do. <laughs> and it snows up there, which, for those of you who don't know, that's the white flaky stuff that you see in the film White Christmas towards the end. Um, So it snowed and I was out with some other troublemakers and we started making snowballs and throwing them at the brick wall of the school. Just a flat brick wall, no windows, it's just the side wall of the school. Well, that was viewed as being disrespectful to the school property. Think that would work today? So we were hauled before the principal and the principal gave us a talk about respect for private property in other people's possessions and other people's property and i sat i stood there and i looked looked at him looked him in the eye, and listened to every word he said and the other two boys apparently shuffled their feet and hung their head down and or smirked at each other. they got sent home i didn't and when i uh you know I was five years old and my my uh when my parents came up, because they had to talk to the principal, the principal said, well, I'm not going to send him home because he showed proper respect, and he listened when I was talking to them. The other two boys didn't. That was a good lesson to learn. But kids today, adults today, don't have respect for private property. You get out of the car at a, at a uh, uh, parking lot and bang your door against the car next to you, that's taking away value of somebody else's property. But it's part of being inconsiderate. We're just so self-absorbed and busy that we don't have time to to show that kind of respect. But this is what we see here. There is respect for private property. But not only should we not steal, verse 15, but the 10th commandment, verse 17, says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Now, the house is property now the wife isn't property in the same sense but it is the integrity of the family you shall not covet your neighbor's wife nor his male servant nor his female servant this has to, because they're treated as property if you go if we look at chapter 21 there are various laws concerning servants and slaves and they're viewed as property they were they're not the same kind of slaves that we had in the american south We would uh, probably understand this to be more like indentured servitude. And at the end of seven years, they're free unless they decide to voluntarily remain in the status uh, of being a slave. So it's really uh, uh, they're they're in this position as a slave because of uh, their own decision or their own irresponsibility, their own indebtedness or their own volition. Nor his male servant nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything... That is your neighbor's. That covers everything else. So your neighbor has something and you would like it. Great, go buy it, but don't desire his to make his yours. Now, this is exactly what's happening in all of these uh, Occupy Wall Street movements that are going on around the country, is they want what somebody else has earned and purchased or labored for whether they labored physically or they labored mentally we had this crazy division first time i ever heard this was uh it was in in the military you refer to a sergeant as sir and the comeback is you don't call me sir I w- i'm a sergeant i work for a living I, I thought well that's odd i thought those officers worked for a living too they just use their brains so, I never quite understand. that. I think that comes out of a completely false view of labor that was developed in this country as a result of labor unions. But that takes us down a different road. So we're not to covet. Now let's see how Jesus handles this. I want you to turn to the New Testament, to Luke chapter twelve. Luke chapter twelve. Now a lot of these passages I'm going to in the New Testament. I'm not looking at them in terms of their overt lesson. This one, I am more than others. Uh, Some of these are the various parables that we'll look at in the next couple of weeks. We're looking at the fact that for the parable to work, it has to assume the legitimacy of certain business practices. If those aren't legitimate, then the parable wouldn't work, and Jesus would be using something illegitimate to try to teach truth, which is... uh, uh, irrational. So we're in Luke chapter 12. And so Jesus has a large multitude of people who've gathered together to listen to him teach, and he <clears throat> they're about to trample one another, so they're an unruly crowd That doesn't mean they can't be Christians. I heard that uh, two weeks ago there was a night to honor Israel in Lubbock, Texas. In the previous two or three years when they've had this, it's been a smaller venue. They've had six or 700 people show up. But they had uh, a larger venue this last time. There were room for 1,500 people. 1,500 people showed up and got in. The next 1,500 people uh, started to riot. Christians, we can't get in. So some pastor went out and calmed everybody down, and uh, <clears throat> they they went on. But even Christians can become unruly. Well, the, I don't. We don't know whether these people were saved or not, but they are certainly unruly, and trampling one another, like the Occupy Wall Street people. And Jesus began to say to his disciples, "That's the inner circle. He's addressing them first, and he says." Um, Begins to teach them. Now, let's. that's in verse 1, just to pick up the context. Now, let's skip down to verse 13. Now, there's one in the crowd. Trust me, there's one in every crowd, but there's one from the crowd that said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This has to be Occupy Wall Street, doesn't it? <laughs> tell those guys on Wall Street that we deserve... Some of that money that they that they've got, they make them share it with us, and that's exactly what it is. Who has the right to tell any person who has worked for a reward? It doesn't matter whether you think that that work was hard or easy. It doesn't matter what you or I think about some, what somebody else does at all. If they're able to convince somebody to pay them inordinate amounts of money to do something then bless them and Lord help me understand how to do it as well okay if they if they're going to convince somebody to do that but nobody has the right to set a standard of, of wealth and say if anybody who makes over this amount of money well that's just that, that's wrong. who are you to say that whether it's ten million dollars or ten billion dollars or ten trillion dollars? Who has the right to put a limit on somebody else's productivity? Because it is the people historically who have made tremendous amounts of wealth who have then used that in order to endow many different institutions from public libraries to the arts to museums, many different things, and, and they use that to invest. They don't just pile those billions of dollars up and stick it under the bed and sit on it, which is how these, how the media presents it. They take that money and they put it somewhere. If, even if they just put it in a bank, the bank will take about 90% of it and put it out to a loan on mortgages, give it to other businesses to, uh, as a loan to help them get started, and then they'll get a return of interest on that. And this is how the economy grows people don't just take all their billions bill gates doesn't stuff it down under the in the cellar of his house and sit on it and he's he's an example of one who goes out and he has various foundations that he has started some he others that he gives large contributions to and this is part of what makes our 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 culture rich with meaning it's not just labor and management there's the richness to life that we have by by having museums and libraries and and artwork and all of these other things that, that uh, go on, opera, ballet, symphony. So, one of the crowd wants Jesus to dictate to every the others to give their inheritance to share it with him. Now, this may be literally tell my brother to divide the inheritance with him. Maybe he's been cheated out, but probably this just means. Uh, a different set uh, situation, but Jesus says to him, "Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you?" Jesus recognizes the principle that that it's not for one human being to impose these levels of acceptable income to others, and Jesus recognizes what the real issue is: it's covetousness, or just are just plain old greed. It is envy. And this is what motivates things like the Occupy Wall Street. There's frustration there because there are people who don't have jobs, but at the core, the people who are uh, funneling money into events like that, whether it's today or whether it's similar things that have happened uh, in the past historically, it is fueled by greed that other people are successful I don't know how to be successful. I can't work hard to be successful. I'm not smart enough to be successful like that. I I have no skills to be successful like that. So I want somebody to tell them to give me part of what they have because they've got so much. Shouldn't they give it to me? I and mean, what are they going to do with 10 billion dollars? Why don't they just share it with me? And I've ne- I haven't noticed too many people get, who win the lottery, who win the the big Powerball lotteries giving away their money to people either. They don't work hard for it. Uh, They just play the game. So Jesus addresses the underlying problem. The problem isn't that the person who has isn't sharing with the person who doesn't have. See, Jesus doesn't say, well, he's rich. He's making more than $200,000 a year. So he needs to give some to you. Never addresses that. He, he never delegitimizes the wealthy person. He addresses, though, the poor person, the one who doesn't have, and he ch- addresses his, his greed and his covetousness. He says, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And he's going to address a lust for possessions as having the source of uh, the key to meaning in life. Jesus isn't saying it's wrong to possess things. He's not saying it's wrong to be wealthy. He's saying it is wrong to think that the possession of things and wealth is the key to happiness or meaning in life. So for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Verse 16, he goes on to say, Jesus spoke a parable saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, that is, the wealthy landowner said, I'll do this. I'll pull down my barns and build larger barns, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. This was the original Scrooge. Uh, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat. Drink and be merry. But God said to him, fool, the government is going to come in and be the great equalizer here and level things out and take half of what you have and spread it around everybody else. he said no. God said, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you've provided? The recognition is that whatever it is that we have is temporary. God's the ultimate owner of everything, and whatever we earn in life, no matter how much effort we put into it, I know a lot of people who work extremely hard and do not have a lot of physical material gain from it. I know other people who, because of circumstances, don't work that, haven't had to work that hard, whether they inherited it or whatever it is, and they have a lot. That's just the nature of life. Life is not guaranteed to have any kind of equality in terms of uh, our circumstances. How dull would that be? And God says, don't put your hope in the things that you have. That's not what gives you meaning in life because that is temporary. But never once in this entire parable is there any indication that it's wrong to have wealth. It's wrong to have wealth and use it wrongly. It's wrong to have wealth and use it as if it is the means of life and to hoard it because God gives it to us as a test to see how we are going to utilize that uh, for others. And we'll talk about that later on. But it's an individual decision. It is not a decision that anyone else has the right to make for, in, any, for someone, uh, even a government. A government nowhere in Scripture We'll come back to the Mosaic Law next time, but nowhere in the Mosaic Law, even when it talks about tithing and it talks about uh, taking care of the poor, is it done through a government mechanism. It's an individual responsibility. So Jesus says in verse 21, um, in conclusion, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Whatever we have in this life is simply to be a a means, something that God gives us to enhance our spiritual life and or the spiritual life of others, supporting missionaries, orphanages, hospitals, whatever it may be, in order to enhance uh, life and enhance ministry. Jesus goes on in the next following verses to talk about um, how we are to think about the details of life. Therefore, he says, do not worry about your life, that is, the details of life, what you'll eat, your body, what you'll put on. Life is more than food. Life is more than money. Life is more than possessions. He said, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? He goes on to talk about how God's going to provide for us in terms of our logistical needs. So... Ultimately, you can't disconnect what he says in verses 13 to 21 with what he says from verses 22 down to to 34. And he will end at the end of verse 34 saying, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's not something negative about having treasure or wealth. It's having it and using it wrongly that's the problem. It's not money that's the root of all evil, as I pointed out. It is the love of money covetousness that is the root of of all evil so what we see here is that in the the, um, foundation of the ten commandments we have a recognition of property rights to the degree that we should not even want what somebody else has in the sense that taking what they have away from them so that it becomes ours now you may look at somebody's new BMW and say well I want that and you go down and buy one that's fine that enhances business and productivity. That's not covetousness. Covetousness is when you look at your neighbor's BMW and when the lights are out at night, you go over there and get it and park it in your garage. That's covetousness. So Scripture is based on these principles of individual volition, value that is imputed by by uh, by man in terms of establishing the value of things, and... Um, Uh, I said volition, value, and property rights. So we'll come back next time and look at some other aspects of property rights in the Old Testament, in the law, and then we'll get into the tithing and tax thing and uh, look at a couple things in the New Testament before we uh, move on with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, think through these things, to realize that your word doesn't just address issues related to salvation but that salvation itself is couched in terms of economics, the economics that you've established, the economics of expiation and redemption, uh, the economics of payment of a price for sin, so that by trusting in Christ we have salvation because he paid the price. Scripture's not about uh, an equal playing field or equal results. It's about utilizing whatever you've given us in a way that is responsible, responsible to you in light of your revelation. Father, we pray that you'll help us understand the things that we've been studying. In Christ's name, amen.